Father in heaven, thank you for the perspective that your word brings. Oh, how I, how uh, perhaps some of us need a perspective in, in the grind and the blessing of the day. Uh, Paul called it always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And such is life, Father. Thank you that Christ has risen. He's exalted that he went from the manger to the cross, to the right hand of you, our Father, where he reigns and intercedes, and where we know that if God is for us, who can be against us? Father, help us to have Paul's perspective, God's perspective, yours, that this affliction is momentary and light, and it produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And therefore, we don't lose heart because the things that are seen are temporal. Things that are unseen are eternal. And so in the meantime, Father, let us, let us be open to you or from one another, a helpful bothering to love and good deeds that we would not forsake assembling together as is the habit of many. But as our Lord's return draws near, all the more, Father, let us be zealous to have, a, have this fraternity, men, arms linked for your glory, for our families, for our wives, our children, if we have them, for the kingdom of God and for future generations should you tarry, Lord Jesus. So Lord, help us to be in the game, to be encouraged this morning. Let only things be said that are in accordance to your word and helpful for the upbuilding and the strength in our joy in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I praise God for you, brothers, and uh, your endurance just to get out of bed with your very busy schedules and the affliction that you face constantly within and without. I'm just grateful for the fraternity. You are the men, the backbone of the church and the kingdom of God, the men who are striving. So praise God. Um, so uh, we're, we're starting a new little subsection here in uh, our, our study of biblical masculinity. Um, hey, Jake. Uh, Biblical Masculinity and Marriage, Part 1. Biblical Masculinity and Marriage, Part 1. Um, there, there won't be anything profound or new to you said in here. Um, today is uh, more introductory. And uh, Lord willing, our next time, the next time we meet in the new year, uh, we'll, we'll get into more, maybe some of the fine print of marriage. Um, leading our wives um, in light of the curse, um, in light of Genesis 3.16 and 4.7, in light of Genesis 4.7, how to, how to shepherd our wives when they're having a hard time, how to shepherd our wives when they resist our leadership, um, how to resist our wives when they have toxic femininity going on in their lives. Um, and how to deal with our own sin as well, how to handle that, and how to shepherd other guys in that. Um, but today we'll, like I said, more introductory. Um, we've been looking at cultural rights, rites of passage into masculinity each week from various cultures around the world. We, look at the, we looked at the Kazakhs and the Mongols um, doing their, uh, whatever it was called, Prakuchi, the eagle, eagle hunting, and all that cool stuff. Today's for the fun of it, is from the Viking culture. I like Viking culture. Parker does too. Are you a, are you Viking? You got Viking in your blood, Parker? Yeah. Do you? Norwegian, Finnish, Swedish. Norwegian. Nice. So yo, so if I get if I misstate this historical aspect of your lineage, uh, correct it for me, okay? Um, this wasn't easy in Viking society. You know, uh, they didn't have hand warmers and foot warmers and uh, you know, eight hundred gram insulate, and it was chilly up there. Uh, and they made do. Um, went, even got on their ships and went and raided Scotland and uh, mixed themselves in with, you know, Wales and Ireland and all those islands. Well, in the meantime, uh, a, a young man would have to prove his maturity. It, this would be, it wasn't as formal as like the Assyrians that we talked about last year, 15 years in the Assyrian army. Um, it was more of a, a staged out kind of 
informal endeavor that a, a young man's like his dad, his grandpa, if he was alive, his uncle, his older brothers would walk him through. Um, they, they were expected to be leaders in their culture, the men from a young age and warriors. As a matter of fact, part of being a leader meant being a warrior. Um, and it was really, a, and I should say one more thing, the two things that were that for, for the Norse culture, uh, two big things were becoming a warrior and a farmer. You had to learn how to fight and farm. And that was your, that was the, the, the one gate, the one door through which you must pass for the rights, the recognition, the responsibility of masculinity. Um, so uh, old Norse literature says uh, a man would be considered as such typically after 15 winters. That's how they measure time, right? We understand 15. How many winters have you been here? Uh, so he would, um, you know, the, the, the Norse were, uh, you know, colorful guys. They rode horses, drank wine, drank other stuff. And, uh, you know, they, they, they were fighters. Um, so the, the young boy's relatives would prepare him for manhood. Um, he would, most families would have a farm, whether big or small. That's just how it was. He didn't have a store, he had a farm. That, that was your store. And uh, about from the age of 10, even younger, um, they would go out and hunt. And hunting was wild. You know, and, and I mean, you, you didn't just sit far away with your scope and gun and take a nice clean shot. I mean, it was, it was up close in action, you know, point blank range with a spear and a bow and arrow and other sorts of weapons. And so it was quite dangerous. Um, and the archaeological records show it was such. So he would have to basically learn how to hunt, how to ride a horse, uh, how to uh, manage the farm uh, and fight. And he only when he proved capable of fighting wild beasts to the death for the hunt and fighting and training with other men, obviously to the death or training as such, preparing for such, would he be allowed to marry? That was the prize. You weren't considered a man until you could do those things. And it wasn't until you could do those things that you're allowed the high, high privilege and status of marriage because then you proved you could be what even, I, I think it's fascinating, even these men and the, with their natural light and common grace would recognize you're to be a protector of the village and of society, of your wife, and a promoter of masculinity. A provider as well. Thank you, Roland. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this, these Scandinavian uh, guys would marry off as, as young as early teens, 14, 15, if they could prove um, and if they could pass the tests in their culture. And one, only when a, a young boy, a young teenager had uh, transitioned through a farmer and a fighter, and then therefore into marriage was he considered a man. So it is what it is. Um, I think one thing we've noticed, this is about the, I don't know, the seventh or eighth right we've looked at across the globe, across the centuries. As we look at all these by way of introduction in our, our chit chat today, um, there's one thing that they all involve. There's one main thing that they all involve. And they all involve exalting marriage to a woman as a thing to be earned, a thing to be worked hard for, a blessing, a responsibility, and a reward to attain to. Uh, whether it was the Kenyans, uh, the, the, the native gentlemen in, South, in the South Pacific, the Kazakhs, the Assyrians, marriage was always like a, you know, that, that cherry on top, the thing that you get, but you got to prove it first. You got to prove that you're embracing something of masculinity in the culture. And I think it's this reality is fascinating because all of these cultures we've observed, they're separated by oceans and centuries. I mean, the Vikings in seventh century and, and fifth and, and sixth and fourth century 
you know, weren't emailing the guys in the, in the, in the New Hebrides, you know, and in Vanuatu. I mean, they're a, they might as well have been a universe apart in those days. But it's the same, same exact thing, right? Uh, they had enough natural light. We should say they actually paid attention enough to their natural light that every man has, common grace, Romans 1, 18 to 23. To observe from general revelation that men are men, men are, be, men are to be masculine, not feminine. Women are to be feminine, um, and women don't want an effeminate man. And, and none of those cultures did a woman want a feminine man. Um, they have their girlfriends. They have their girlfriends and their sisters in Odin for that, and, and whatever it was. Their sisters in Christ today for that. Um, and men are, are, are wired by God to desire a feminine woman, not another guy, Genesis 2.24. So interesting, all these things that we've observed. All right, today's discussion, part one, looking foundationally at issues pertaining to marriage. Um, and then next time talking about how to, how to lead in a masculine way, how to lead our wives in a masculine way and getting like pretty specific, some specific scenarios um, of conflict and uh, looking at the contentious wife in Proverbs, and especially looking at this because the Bible brings it out a lot, and because as I've chatted with guys in my short 15 years of pastoral ministry, that I mean that issue comes up constantly. How do I lead my wife when she's having a hard time? I'm having a hard time. She's contentious. She's combative. She's resistant, or which is to say, she's feeling Genesis 4:7. Okay, and we'll look at the unique ways that men and women are cursed. Men and women are cursed in different ways. It's, it's really an interesting and frightening thing and how that comes out in marriage and how men are to be masculine in handling that as leaders, as leaders and patriarchs of their homes and society. Okay, so let's look briefly. Number one, Satan's attack on marriage. Uh, we understand that God and Christ are Satan's fiercest enemies. Satan labors uh, to blind. He's the little God of this world, little, little G. That's helpful for perspective as we look around what's happening in the kingdom of man. Of course, drag queens are going to be brought into the White House two days ago uh, uh, because Satan's the god of this world. He's always seeking to distort and pervert, uh, twist God's good creation. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He swipes the word out of the unregenerate heart when they hear it, Matthew 13, 19, always looking for people to devour, especially men. Right, especially men. You take the men away from society, and and you take the leadership away. God's designed leadership, and then you can just do all kinds of damage. It's like it, it, taking the men away from a society is the ancient equivalent of removing a wall from a city. Right, the the protectorate, the the leadership, the guard, right, the, the strength. You remove that, it's anything goes. You can get the kids, um, which is why we see what's happening now. They they want why do they why do they want kids at drag shows why do they want drag show story hour at the library why do they want abominable transgender books at in kindergarten which is happening why do they want that well because from, from a human perspective looking at romans 118 to 32 it's it's not enough just to have Ober obergefell in 2015 gay marriage allowed that it, they said all we want was that but we that's not all they want Romans 1, 18 to 32 says they lust having everybody else applaud their sin. Okay, end of Romans 1, 18 to 32. It's not just enough for them to do their sin. They lust having others applaud them for it. And these sins that have typically been considered off limit for children aren't, if, if it's off limit for children, it, show, it condemns their conscience because it shows, well, there's something not right with it. Because if, if, a, if, if a thing is totally right, then children should be able to at least know about it have, it, have it discussed. And so that's why this is pushed. Satan knows he can get the children. Uh, you, you can just totally destroy things. And, um, you know, you see this ripping away children from their parents, uh, privacy laws for adolescence becoming a transgender mom and dad don't need to know about it this kind of thing okay um so this is satan's doing seeking to devour he must be firmly resisted first peter 5 9 by men of truth peter exhorts us you need to resist him and do so hard 
not, not being passive and weak and not saying anything. That's not the way to do it. Resisting something doesn't require a passive action. Any attempt to define marriage, family, in a way that difference, differs from scripture is rebellion against God. Uh, Dr. MacArthur has said this recently, quote, the two greatest attacks of terror on America were perpetuated by, perpetrated by the Supreme Court. The first one was the legalizing of abortion, 1973. Subsequent to that, there have been millions of babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. The second great act of terror perpetrated by the Supreme Court was the legalization of same-sex marriage. The destruction of human life in the womb in a sense, the destruction of motherhood, and now the destruction of the family itself. No bomb, no explosion, no attack, and no assault on people physically can come uh, anywhere near that kind of terrorism. Our country is being terrorized by the people most responsible to protect it, those who are to uphold the law. No human court has the authority to redefine morality, but this human court has said murder is not murder, and marriage is not marriage, and family is not family. They've usurped the authority that belongs only to God, who's the creator of life, marriage, and family. Any and all attempts to define morality differently than God at uh, has is a form of rebellion and blasphemy, blasphemy against God, against his holy nature, against his holy law and his holy people. This nation at its highest level has taken a position against God. Spot on. Um, Jim Brooks uh, wrote a great uh, paper in the, uh, it's a council, what is it, Pastor Matt, the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood? Yeah. He said this, quote, Satan hates marriage. He hates Christian marriages in particular for believers dramatizing Christ and the church powerfully display the gospel in their marriage. Satan thus aims to destroy Christian marriages because such opposition hinders the witness of Christ to the world. To counter Satan's attack, we must understand God's design for marriage, Satan's strategy against it, and how to stand firm in our marriages. So a couple ways that uh, uh, Dr. Brooks shows that Satan has endeavored to distort marriage in history. I thought this was interesting. Early, early on, unnatural marriages, and this is a long study in itself, but uh, probably what happened there is demons came down and possessed men and were trying to, Genesis 6, 4, 6 1 to 4, this is a whole long, complicated uh, area of study, but probably were trying to basically pollute and destroy the human race and doing so as they uh, procreated with women. And they're probably trying to do so in light of Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel given, that, that, that there's going to be this, a seed of the woman that will crush Satan's head. Well, if there's a seed of the woman, let's just destroy the seed of the woman, Seth's line and, and beyond. Um, next, Satan's distortion is interreligious marriages. Interreligious marriages. Look at Deut Deuteronomy 7.3 there in your notes. Furthermore, God says, you shall not intermarry with them, talking about the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Hivites. Don't intermarry with them. Oh, that's... You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Uh, so they were not to marry people outside the faith, nor are they today. Right? Uh, unholy marriages, Acts 5, 1 to 11, where Ananias and Sapphira conspire together in ungodliness. Uh, that's an unholy marriage. That's Satan distorting it. Um, Peter says in Acts 5, 3 there in your notes, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Satan's trying to destroy, among other things, this marriage. Why has he filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? and to keep back some of the price of the land. And you know what happened there. That was a not, not really a seeker-friendly church service, I guess, where husband and wife get killed during church for lying. Um, and that's at the beginning of the new covenant. If God wanted seeker-friendly church services, that's a funny way to say that he wanted it, isn't it? Because right after it, in verse 11 and 12, it says, and everybody was scared of this movement. And they were in awe. And God is saying there, among other things, I haven't changed from the Old Testament. I haven't changed. I'm still holy. Right? Uh, celibate marriages, another way Satan distorts it, celibate marriage, not celibacy. But the, the, this bizarre issue is a kind of a Gnostic issue in first century pagan Corinth, where 
husband and wives thought it was more holy to not have sexual intimacy. And Paul has to deal with that and say, knock that off. What are you doing? Satan is going to wreck your marriage and cause problems if you practice, if you forbid physical intimacy between a married couple and think and think you're being more spiritual than God. Sometimes this happens. Well, we're, we're going to be more spiritual than God and we're not going to have physical intimacy. And Paul says, no, it's the opposite. You're sinning. You're sinning. Satan distorts it. Forbidden marriages now. The kind of the traditional idea of celibacy is another way Satan distorts this thing. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3, 1 and 3. Doctrine of demons, men who forbid marriage. I mean, how clear is it that Romanism is demonic? I mean, it's so obvious. There's just some very obvious indicators that Roman Catholicism by the book is not from God. Uh, The Council of Trent. If you say justification is by faith alone, you are anathema. That's that's Rome, Romans 3.28. We maintain a man is justified by faith and not the law. Right, and then here, you know, the high exalted leadership in this movement can't marry. This is a doctrine of demons if you forbid men from marrying. Right, it's a satanic thing, and may God save many out of that movement. Um, also today, these are examples again of Satan's attack on marriage, uh, Christian marriages under satanic attack, um, with the submission idea, Ephesians five twenty two twenty three. Paul had to say this to Timothy. He was pastoring at Ephesus because some historians think there was like an ancient kind of a, a, a feminazi movement, movement going on there with the temple of Diana and, and kind of trying to overthrow God's design of, of male headship. And so that's in part why he says what he says in Ephesians 5.22 to 20, excuse me, to 33. And of course, that's part of the issue today as well. Um, but that even within quote unquote Christian movement, that, that gets... People have issues with that, with submission, right? Um, also today, same-gender marriage. That's, of course, a satanic attack. That's not marriage. It's not, you know, you legalize what you want. It's, it's not marriage um, because marriage, because things have a definition. This, this uh, high-tech filter right here isn't, isn't a pink cupcake, right? Because pink cupcakes have a different definition than a high-tech filter. And so it is with same-gender marriage. It's not, it's not marriage. Um, and then what's coming probably is uh, zoogamy. Zoogamy is uh, marriage to animals. That's, that's, you'll probably see that. That's already happened. I was doing some research recently. A, a woman married her dog um, in England. Um, uh, a guy like married his horse I saw on the news. Um, so this will become more popular because once Satan opens the door, a little bit. Once you budge on the word of God at all, then once, you know, the camel's whiskers in the door, his whole body's coming in soon. So zoogamy will be a thing. Um, bestiality, it's nothing new. God had to forbid it in the Torah. And then progogamy. Progogamy is already practiced marriage to things. Marriage to robots, to, to sex toys, marriage to all kinds of bizarre things. I saw there was an article that came out, a guy in Japan, and it was even it showed his marriage ceremony. He married one of these like uh, Japanimation dolls. You see that? So this is progogamy, marriage thing. So all this is happening. Um, and uh, it's, it's disgusting and it's satanic. And so when you budge on the word of God a little bit, oh, these are just ideals in the Bible. We, 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 we don't have to kind of, we don't have to be so biblical on, no, you do, because God is God and it's his word. And when you open the door a teeny bit to Satan, He's coming all the way through, like water, right? Okay, so these are some ways um, that that Satan distorts marriage. Marriage is God's creation, of course, number two. Um, God exists, the human race knows this, Romans 1, 18 to 21. Uh, In his kindness, he's given us his word. The 66 books of the Bible, we've we've talked extensively about this and in trust, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scriptures God breathed. Therefore, scripture is the authority on all matters concerning life and godliness, whatever it talks about. Um, there's this weird just idea in our society, well, that's your religion, that doesn't pertain to me. 
that's just odd. Um, it, it doesn't matter if you're a, an, an atheist or a Zoroastrian or a Rastafarian or that you're under the authority of God and you're not God and you know God exists. So it doesn't matter what opinion, you know, you can like apples, oranges, you can like hamburgers or vegan burritos, but God's your God. <laughs> this is the way it is. Um, and so his 66 books are the authority on the issue. Um, marriage was something he created at the beginning. He created two genders among the human race, male and female, in his own image. He created them. Uh, God created marriage, defining it as a lifelong covenant relationship between one male and one female. Anything else cannot be defined as marriage. Um, it's just the way it is. You know, well, let me define this orange. Let me define this orange as your paycheck, Mr. Atheist. You know, that, that won't work for you. You, won't, you, don't, you don't like that. You know, instead of giving you 10 grand this month for your work that you did, how about, how about 10 oranges? Because I just define it differently. Um, so we understand that the law of non-contradiction, um, uh, that these things are built into the image of God and it's, we need to abide by them. Marriage is marriage. Uh, Genesis 2.22, Yahweh God fashioned into a woman the rib, which he, a literal rib, absolutely, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, now, th this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It shows the, the oneness, the intimacy, the, and the headship. Adam first, she comes from him. Uh, second, 1 Corinthians 11, God is the head of Christ, Christ the head of man, man is the head of the woman. And this is shown in, in the actual literal created order here. Um, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So marriage was created before the fall and is good. Um, Foster and Tennant, I like what they say, quote, it's a key milestone for a man and a massive step forward when he finds a wife. She's the second rail running parallel to fraternity that supports him, carries him forward, and keeps his mission on track. Uh, what about singleness and the gift of that? We'll talk about that uh, eventually. Um, the fall, of course, complicates marriage, and we'll attempt to address that in part two. Um, number three, so marriage is something to be pursued, generally speaking, not avoided. It's to be pursued, not avoided. Obviously, this is not to say that uh, at all that an unmarried person is automatically outside of God's will um, or anything like that, but it is to say that generally, in most situations, <clears throat> scripture indicates that, that marriage is something for men to pursue and not avoid, to make a goal and not delay, generally speaking. Okay. Uh, one study showed in 1962, I thought this is interesting, and uh, the references are at the bottom of your page, 80% uh, of people were married by age 25. In 1980, 80% of people were married by 28. And in 2019, 80% of people were married by age 40. And the correlation with the moral decay of society there is not coincidental, right? Um, we'll, we'll talk about that. You guys understand that, I trust. Whatever the case, though, this is to show that the vast majority of people pursue marriage. It's hardwired, it's built in, into the natural light. Um, now, several reasons exist why God's plan generally for men is that marriage is to be pursued and not avoided, made a priority and not delayed. I'll just give a few. You can think of more. Number one, or letter A there, marriage is necessary to fulfill the cultural mandate. This is why it's not to be delayed. God gives a cultural mandate, a creation mandate. God blessed them, verse 28 of Genesis 1, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Notice he blessed them. Who's them? Plural. Generations thereafter. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on earth. So God created a single context where the human race can fulfill the creation mandate. How do you be fruitful and multiply? Marriage. That's, how, that's where it starts, according to God. Not cohabiting, not your girlfriend or your boyfriend or any of this. The only way to accomplish it is a man and a woman together in covenant relationships. So marriage is necessary to be fruitful and multiply. Number two, letter B, God declared uh, that it's not good for a man to be alone. 
Genesis 2.18, Yahweh God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. Um, was that only for Adam? I don't think so, because the plan continues. It's affirmed later. Jesus affirms it in places like Matthew 19. Paul does in Ephesians 5. Um, and this is part of, you see that God makes an observation of his creation, and then it's an intentional, there's an intentional glitch in it that God says, I'm going to fix. And he fixes it right after verse 18. Um, this indicates that generally speaking, men are made uh, incomplete, might be too strong of a word, but um, needing a creation mandate helper, a, a life complement with a few rare exceptions. And so what completes men is not other men, male companions, animals, work hobbies, for example, because immediately following the declaration of incompleteness, God creates a woman. The woman would solve the problem of man's incompleteness. 19 there, verse 19, out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. It's interesting that he says, it's not good for you to be alone, and then makes animals and brings them for the man to show headship over animals lordship over the animals he names them all an expression of total dominion and future subduing these are not equal to people whatever he called it was its name the man gave names to cattle birds beasts of the field but for adam there was not found so the animal stuff was like a it's a lesser point. It's an interjection. It's a digression to the bigger deal. There wasn't found a helper suitable for him. Verse 21, so Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs, and so on. So more specifically, covenant marriage with a woman, not, for example, cohabitation with a woman, casual companionship with a woman, or anything other than marriage. That sort of solves the issue in part. Why delay this? Why delay it? No reason from Scripture to do so. No reason whatsoever in Scripture to do so. I had the joy of doing uh, uh, Mr. and Mr. Mrs. Colson's uh, number three, their wedding in August. And uh, Reese is number three, right, Rick? <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're both, uh, they were sophomores. And it was sophomores in college, and it was such a joy to break the worldly mold and to see two wonderful saint, young saints of God get married in college. Why not do that? And fast-track maturity, joy, uh, sexual design, and the drives that are present in, in college-age people, you know, and avoid that and, and get going on oneness. Um, number three, men are hardwired with sexual passion, speaking of. And the only legitimate God-permitted fulfilling of these desires in the context of marriage to a woman. This is the third reason why marriage should be pursued and not avoided. Um, the vast majority of men, uh, you know, in your teen years, early 20s, 20s, and beyond even, have strong sexual passions. And the reality of that indicates that marriage is to be pursued, not avoided. Again, because marriage is the only legitimate outlet for fulfilling and gratifying that God-given passion that's in the vast majority of men. First Corinthians 7, Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But be, so he's talking about single men there. How do we know? Because of what he says next. Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Because of immoralities. That's interesting. So marriage is not just created, it's created before the fall, but the curse kind of ups the ante of how important it is. I think that's interesting. All the more important. Why? Immorality, sexual temptation. It, it, you know, well, are you saying that marriage is just to take care of it? Yeah, 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 we are saying that because the Bible says that. Absolutely. It's a great blessing where a man lays down his life for a woman and a woman for a man and to help this reality. First Corinthians 7, 8, 9, Paul says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it's good for them 
if they remain even as I. So if you have this interesting gift of singleness, go for it. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, I had a dear man when I was, you know, 20, over 20 years ago. Tell me, is that, when I was dating Leslie, we had just been saved and it was just wild. And, you know, I, I, I had never known any Christian anything. And he said, look, you got this girlfriend, you know, you're, you're burning with passion. I was 23 years old, 24. And he said, you need to get married. I was like, all right, <laughs> that's a good solution. I, I like that verse, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's helpful. Um, so the presence of sexual desires, we, we need to say this too. It's not sin or corruption from the fall. You know, oh, men are just, you know, all they, they, they just have these strong sexual desires. They sure do. And it's from God. And there's nothing wrong with that. The men are strongly driven that way. There is zero. We repudiate any sort of weird cultural stigma about that, notwithstanding the fact that our culture says that and has a multi-billion dollar pornographic business going on. A man's sexual desire is not sin. The same gender desire is, and desire for someone other than his wife is. Scriptures to substantiate that. And there's a weird, there's been a weird movement, by the way, in evangelical Christianity the same, that says that same gender sexual desire is, is, is not wrong. You seen that, Pastor Matt? You've, you've heard that. It's just odd. Like the scriptures say that it is. Men burning for men, women burning for women. I mean, Romans 1. Um, it, it, it is wrong. However, there is nothing remotely wrong with sexual desires. It's God-created, God-honoring phenomena. God is the one who programmed it that way. He did the hard wiring. Take it up with him. And we understand, however, the only permissible expression and gratifying of sexual desires in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in, in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. First Thess 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay. Uh, and brothers, for, for, for those, those of us who are not yet ma married and maybe battling, uh, you know, porn or self-sex or ens enslavement to those things, um, confess it to the Lord and get a godly guy to help you um, and help you to pursue God's outlet for that, namely the, the, the nobility of marriage. Uh, if you're a married guy battling with porn, let us come alongside you as well. That happens. Um, or if you have an unhealthy, uh, intimate, physical intimacy with your wife and you need some counseling, this is a very normal issue in counseling. It is so normal, so common. Let us come alongside you and walk with you, you and your wife, to, to help with this. The Word of God is sufficient. By God's grace, we can help shepherd you, shepherd your wife, and implement a biblical approach, a health, healthy biblical approach to sexual intimacy. Okay? Marriage is for that, among other things. So number three, that's another reason to pursue, not avoid marriage. Number four, letter D, also pursue marriage because a wife is a blessing. A wife's a great blessing from the Lord. Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And notice it doesn't say obtains a perfect wife or a match made in heaven. That's kind of a myth, actually. Yes, God is sovereign over who you will marry, and he's decreed it. But we have to be careful. There's not really such a thing as like this perfect somebody out there, and if I don't find them, my life is doomed. That, that's a myth. We'll see why that is in Scripture. Reasons why a, life is, why a wife is a blessing, so many things you could add to this. Companionship. That first deal there in Genesis 2.18, companionship. That's the purpose of marriage. Physical intimacy, that's why a wife is a blessing. And we'll say that unashamedly. Um, growing in the Lord together and sanctification. I mean, marriage will be a wonderful opportunity for you and your dear wife to share with each other in the ups and downs of growing in humility and sanctification. And look back and be like, man, remember when we used to believe this or do this? Like, oh, man, praise God for his growth in our lives. You know, uh, someone to compliment your weaknesses. I, I submit to most of us who are married, your wife probably has strengths in areas where you don't. And it's, it's cool to see that. 
um, bringing children into the world, if the Lord allows, or through biologically or adoption or foster or whatever. What a great joy. Um, someone to learn with and from. I learn from my wife all the time. Someone to support you in suffering. Someone who can cook better than you. That's a huge blessing. And we don't apologize for that either because the Bible talks about how one of the dignity, part of the dignity of femininity is keeping home, managers of the home, chapter and verse, Titus 2, 3 to 5. Um, someone to enhance your ministry. Like whatever it is, however you minister, your gifts, your, the way you serve the body of Christ in the kingdom of God, your wife will enhance that. That's part of being a helper, is to help you be better at serving. Um, someone to laugh with. Love laughing with my wife. Those are some of the most joyful moments. And learning the masculine trait of protection. Growing into the masculinity of being a protectorate. Is marriage can, you don't have to be married to do and learn that, but it sure does help for stubborn, sinful, slow to learn guys like me. Um, a fifth reason why marriage is to be pursued and not delayed. Uh, marriage is the context through which children are to be brought into the world. And this isn't to say that everyone can or will have children. It's not necessarily sin if you don't, but this is another reason to pursue and not avoid. Again, God bless them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Children are a blessing and gift from the Lord. Marriage is one of the vehicles through which children are brought about, is the vehicle. Um, Psalm 127.3, behold, children are a gift of Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. And, and that children of one's youth, the psalmist tells us, that's a, one second, that's a reason not to delay marriage. Go ahead, Brett. Yeah, I was just curious how you should reconcile it in presence or acceptance, especially in the early verse of the Bible, concubines. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so like concubines and polygamy and stuff like that? Uh, just like multiple lives. I mean, I know that ultimately it led to, didn't lead to productive uh, results, right? But, so, like, but it seems like godly men were taking on concubines. Yeah. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, David, yeah. Abraham, Solomon. Saying that that was just sin or was that de decreed or? Um, well, yes and yes. God was sovereign over that, obviously. Excellent question, by the way. I'm glad you asked it. But, it, but it's, it's not God's design. Uh, we see from Genesis 2, and Jesus restates this in Matthew 19, from the beginning, one man, one woman. So yes, they were sinning. And, those, uh, and the presence of these things, contrary to God's design in Scripture, are not God's affirmation of them. It's quite the opposite. It's an affirmation of what God, of this... Uh, paradigmic and banner statement early in the Torah that is to be understood as, as Yahweh's chief trait, namely uh, Exodus 34, 6, Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So that's kind of like a theme of the whole Bible, right? That statement in Exodus 34, 6, when Moses is on the mountain with Yahweh, kind of getting into some biblical theology here, but, and that is to govern how we see the rest of redemptive history play out. And things like David with Bathsheba, David with his concubines, Solomon as well, is God showing, showing that, that paradigmic, paradigmic statement true of his char chief character traits that, he, that are enhanced in redemption. Um, you know, hermeneutically, we understand just because something happens and godly men do a thing doesn't mean God is pleased with it, right? Um, it's not a command. A command is what God wants. History is just what happens. That God is sovereign over, and he's not okay with it. God warned them, as a matter of fact, in Exodus or Deuteronomy 17, was pertaining to kings, if you multiply your wives, your life's going to be hard. Can we say we're going through as a similar cultural deal today with same-sex marriage? Yeah. It seems like culturally back then it was totally Yeah, it was there. Like it, yeah, it's accepted. Yeah, great, great observation. Yeah, but God's design is clear, isn't it, brothers, from the text? One man, one woman. Walter was actually talking about this yesterday a little bit, just in that the idea of polygamy and 
God, in a sense, sort of overlooking that in times past, because you know, even though it was not his design, it was sin, it was still not contrary to nature, whereas homosexuality, hmm. uh, transgenderism, these things, Interesting. like, are a different in a way a different category because they are as roman says contrary to nature yeah yeah that, that's a good observation yeah we understand that polygamy is you know sin is sin but there are categories and same gender marriage is radically contrary to nature you know yeah great great point thanks guys um a couple more minutes we got left here um, so other, other reasons to pursue and not delay marriage, observations from common grace, um, from the natural light God gives men. Marriage and family are essential stabilizers to society. There's no denying that. Even, even atheistic psychologists have done studies over the generations and observed this. Marriage and family are essential stabilizer to society. And, and as we look at, um, I was talking to um, a brother about this yesterday about Rome and how Rome fell and Edward Gibbons in his classic book on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire um, sort of makes an, a, an anthropological analysis in there and says basically there are five reasons why this previously thought indestructible empire I mean Rome was a force to be reckoned with back in the day I mean, an absolute, uh, I mean, a, 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 a force par excellence. And he, and he observes five reasons. Number one, the breakdown of the family. He says that's the number one reason why this otherwise impenetrable empire just came crashing down. What was the official year? 454 was, a, was Visigoths? Okay. I mean, it was, it was a pr progress, you know, but... It just came crashing down. Number one reason, this, is, this guy is not a, a, a lightweight historian, the breakdown of the family. You know, and we would observe, well, God, God's design, his designs, they work because they're from God. Um, number two, uh, and other ones are related, increased taxation. Should we go socialist and communistic? People usually don't like their money taken away from them. They usually, they usually ain't having that, you know. The peasants decapitated Louis, right, when they, he just started, well, I need to build Versailles now, and I need gold, not silver mirrors, you know, and that didn't, that didn't fly with the peasants. Um, third, an insatiable craving for pleasure. Whew. Hedonism. Priorities shifted. And things came crashing down in Rome. Fourth, an unsustainable buildup of armaments. They, they couldn't do what they needed. And fifth, the decay of religion. Not the disappearing of religion, the decaying of it. A rotting religion. And when you have rainbow lights on the White House, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, 1 Corinthians 13, 6. This is a cult now. This is a cult. When you have standards and actualization of self and proselytizing, this is a cult now. It's a religion. Religion decaying, not religion disappearing. Religion can never disappear because man is an insatiable worshiper. The decay thereof. You know, say what we want about like Roman Catholicism and Mormons, but I, I like those guys are my friends as it pertains to dealing with the kingdom of man. When we're talking about things like what marriage is, abortion, um, morals and society, I'll link arms with them. They need to be evangelized, but that's a religion that hasn't decayed a lot compared to others. Right? Make sense? Please hear me right on that. <laughs> please, please don't hear me saying that, oh, those are, you know, those are biblical. They're not. You understand what I'm saying. The decay of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Right? Interesting observation from a, a historian there, Edward Gibbons. And would you agree with that, Ian? As uh, you, a resident historian, history major? Okay. 
So marriage is often, give me just one more minute here, gentlemen. Marriage is often a motivation to righteousness, including unregenerate righteousness. In other words, you know, an unregenerate man, there's such a polarized a spectrum in there where he can come under the natural light of external morality. And that's a good thing. We would rather have that for the unregenerate or the unelect man. We'd rather have that than a full plunge into drag queenism, that religion, right? Um, learning self-denial and selflessness for another person in marriage, learning to think and care about more than oneself. Um, these, in other words, these, these, when married spouses often concern themselves with these areas of righteousness, external righteousness, not regenerate righteousness, sexual fidelity, typically spouses practice that. Financial stability, that's something that's a motivator in marriage. Financial stability typically requires character development, self-control, personal responsibility to keep a steady job, communication skill, learning to interact properly with a spouse, pride of ownership, taking care of, you know, you and your wife buy a house. Having children also becomes a catalyst to righteousness and responsibility to provide financially a character necessary for a steady job, the pressure felt to instill character, work ethic. And it's like, well, I have these human beings in my, in my tutelage now. God usually triggers a wire in the human, the human constitution that like, I, I got to like guard and protect and for most in most situations and, and, and still something of external righteousness in these, in these little children. So the institution of marriage family serves as a guardrail for human society to keep it from plunging into the depravity of which it's capable. Marriage serves as a restraint corralling society from plunging further downstream into our depraved capabilities. All that to say, these are reasons why my unregenerate friends, my regenerate friends, marriage is to be pursued, not avoided. Prioritized, not delayed. There's balance there. We don't get consumed with it. Like, oh, if I don't get married, I'm going to die. And I don't know how it'll go on. And our what a woman and a wife is a savior. That's not, that's not right. That's not godly, nor is it attractive to a woman to be overly needy like that. But we get it because of these reasons, these six reasons is to be pursued. Father in heaven, you're on the throne as we go out today. You're reigning and ruling. You're in charge. And oh God, would that you would call more men to biblical masculinity. Even within our own church. And even outside the church, Father, that you would use us in our struggles and our weaknesses as instruments to bring men into the kingdom and embrace and walk in your good design for masculinity. For those of us who are married, who will be married, uh, give us extra grace, extra, extra grace to fulfill our masculine mandate in marriage, to not be afraid, to be humble, to be both tender and tough in a godly way that conforms to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for these brothers, Lord. Give them strength Give them joy and give them favor in all they set out to do until we gather Sunday to celebrate you and this Christmas season. Father, let Christ be on our mind and on our lips. Use us to bring people to Christ, to bring people to salvation, Father, this Christmas season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.